going to get out of the way. I have to talk about Malignant. <laughs> There's no other way I can get through this episode until I let this energy out. Go for it. Let it all out. Here's the thing. By the time this episode comes out, which I know we always say we record live, and I will never say re- otherwise. Are you about to reveal the truth about <laughs> the, the truth. podcast? But at the time, we don't usually record it live. <laughs> oh. At the time we are recording this, Andy has not yet seen Malignant. However, when this episode comes out, he will have seen it. And I'm really hoping that the next time we do an episode, he'll have to say something about <laughs> Malignant. Because we can we aw- awkwardly splice in my take about it after I it see it. It is insane. Like, it is, it has really been the film that, like, after I saw it, I was on a emotional high. Because I <laughs> could not believe what I had just seen. And I thought, oh... Maybe that's just because I had a great time. I watched it with my brother. We had a great time watching it. It was yeah. overall, I would say, a seven, seven and a half out of ten at best of a film. But as an actual entertainment, eleven out of ten. <laughs> There's no film that is as entertaining as this film has been, and I could not have guessed it from James Wan would yeah, do something right. like this. So I was like, yeah, no, maybe I'm just not feeling it. I haven't stopped thinking about this film <laughs> since I had seen it. Like, it's very rare for me for a film like this that's not, like, close to an 8 or a 9 or even a 10 out of 10 where I'm just like, I gotta see this with everyone I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because what's so insane, it's even perfect for this episode, too, where it's like, it feels like, not only does it feel like Argento taking to an obnoxious degree that I don't even think Argento would have ever taken himself, <laughs> it feels like old school Ramey and Jackson. Okay. To a degree, in terms of, like, that kind How of schlock. That shit nuts. Yes, it's schlock. It's full okay. on. A James Wan has made the best homage to the best and worst of horror. <laughs> like it is just full on. It's. It feels like he is a genuine fan who has seen way too many sequels of a certain franchise. Okay. That's how malignant feels. Yeah. Where it's like he knows that there is only a singular kind of like a niche appeal to what he's trying to do. Yeah. But he's going for it. Right. And, and what's even and it's better. studio backed. Yeah, that's the thing is that it's studio backed. Well, and the fact that it was, I mean, it's marketed like another James Wan movie. Yeah. Like, it, like just another Insidious or a, which you know. Which almost feels like he expected that because yeah. I went into it going, God, the trailers didn't sell me on this film. And yeah, like, right. He said it was Argento inspired. So but I don't you know. you just don't see that. Literally the, the first scene in the film, it is full on schlock. And yeah. I went. He knew. He knew they were not going to market this film how it actually is. Yeah. So he made a scene that feels honestly out of place compared to the rest of the first <laughs> act, but completely captures the tone of where it's going. Okay. I cannot help but respect James Wan more that he could do that. <laughs> yeah, th- it is really exciting to hear all the your response to it and all the discourse on it just because, I mean, I- I've been pretty like meh on Juan so far through yeah. his career. And, he's made some movies I enjoy. Honestly, he's made some stinkers. I think he's talented, but I don't know if any of his films that I think back on besides Saul are like maybe great. Yeah. In they're my all mind. kind of like they're okay, solid. This they're guy, enjoyable. This guy has competence in his genre. Yeah. You know, cool. But like this movie made me go, oh this Juan's a fucking horror nerd. <laughs> he's a nerd. Like he went hard. And he finally got to be a nerd. Like, like it really says something where he goes so hard that red letter media can't even tell if he's being serious or not with his intentions. Oh, like the, in their half in the back. Yeah. Like where I'm gonna say right now, if you've seen Malignant, um, I think everything in that film is full on intentional. Even the bad shit. Mm. Everything in that feels like that movie is meant to be schlock to the umpteenth degree. 
And people are like, well, what if it's a Tommy Wiseau situation? The only difference is Juan has made actual good films prior to Malignant. Right. So it's like, it's not the same thing where it's like, you make one movie, it's bad, but people think it's funny, so you pretend it was meant to be bad. Yeah, you can't can't claim that Juan doesn't know his way around a wide appeal horror movie. Juan put like H.P. Lovecraft books in fucking Aquaman just so he could do like weird trench shit (laughs) with those creatures and like the other world and like Jules Verne stuff. Like he's a he's a goof. It's like this film is like there's so much more to Juan that we've ever seen and I don't think we'll ever see anything like this again (laughs) from him but I'm so glad we got it. Well, I'm excited to watch it. Yeah, I'm so excited for you and Adam to watch it. Like, it's going to be a blast. <laughs> and you would recommend everyone see it? Listen, if you if you see Malignant and you think to yourself, oh, this looks like The Conjuring, it is absolutely not The Conjuring. <laughs> it's false advertising. And the reason why it's like that is because I feel like Warner Brothers marketing team went, I have no idea how to market this film. Yeah. So let's just market it like it's like a usual wand film. Well, it sounds like a movie that, I mean, if if I'm reading your interpretation of it correctly, it sounds like any accurate marketing of this movie would make it look like a bad movie. Yes, because it is. So people wouldn't like, see yeah. it because, because it's like, be the like plot, oh, this just looks stupid. The plot is dumb beyond belief. Yeah, and it's hard not to watch that without like if you don't have the idea of like, oh yeah, this is obviously like a reference to like the black glove killer and like the, the hardcore deaths and like uh-huh. Jalo films. And like after, I mean, honestly it was after I think rewatching our, the Argento films for our trilogy. It was watching it being like, even the score just feels over the top, like a fucking Jalo film. <laughs> like it, it feels like it's trying to be goblin, but can't be goblin. So they're doing like a two yeah. thousands, like, rock interpretation of it (laughs) but it's like even funnier though too because they take a a popular song from fight club well it's from the it's from the pixies and they make it its motif for the entire film (laughs) and it's and it really just like wow they're just pushing it (laughs) they're going hard and like looking into the film it really is it shouldn't work because it's like not only is this like a film that is doing batshit insane things? Yeah. Which most times when studios do that. I think a good example of that is like the Wachowskis. I think they're fascinating directors and I think they try to throw so much at the wall yeah. at times. And unfortunately, it doesn't always, it doesn't always stick. It, it often is, doesn't stick. I mean, sadly, yes. <laughs> yeah. Post-Matrix, it really is hit or miss with a lot of their projects. But with this film, not only is it his creation... It's also his his wife's like his wife has a story credit on oh, here. Oh wow, yeah. His wife is also one of the nuns from the nun. Oh. Which is uh, you know, uh, here's the thing. Uh, the nun's a gigantic piece of shit. It is. Malignant's a treasure. <laughs> Malignant, I think someone said it best so like on I think Facebook I saw a friend who saw it where it's like Malignant is a cult classic in the making. If it doesn't make any money, it's going to be talked about I think right. for years to come in like the midnight cinema scene and whatnot. Yeah. If it makes money, God, if I could get another sequel, I will see it <laughs> ten times. <laughs> it is just an insane film that should have never happened, but did, and I'll always appreciate it for that. That's awesome. And I, I got got that out of the way. Andy will talk about it if he's that interested in it next time yeah, we do we'll, an episode. Yeah, we'll tune in again for my yeah. take. But the next story we have to talk about that yeah, is well, actual news. Well, and it's on, on a similar note yes. of, of directors making... Uh, unexpected moves. Oh my God, <laughs> Nolan! You or <laughs> I just called you Nolan. Well, spoilers. It's about Christopher Nolan. Yes. So for the first time in almost it's first time in a decade, I think 
Decade first time plus. since 2002. 2002. Every, Cr- yeah. Christopher Nolan's next film is going to be about Oppenheimer creating the atomic bomb. Right. And it's not going to be at Warner Brothers. Yeah, he's going to be a universal every, film. Yeah, universal. Every film he's made since Memento has been with Warner Brothers. There's a part of me that is curious to think if like Universal is going to have like, not saying that they're the, they're not the same at all creatively, but it's like if Universal is going to have the same kind of thing with Nolan that like Spotify has with Joe Rogan, where it's like they just had no idea how much of like just how different they expected in terms of like budgetary and just like how different. Cause I know, yeah, it's been since like 2002 and it's like Nolan's iconic for having these gigantic budgets and putting so much into practical effects. But it's like, it's gotta be different when you're the studio funding it. Right. Yeah. Where it's like, I feel like universal is going to be like, all right, Nolan, how much money do you need? Okay. (laughs) How much for this one scene? Well, I, (laughs) uh, do. Okay. I believe Uh, it was IGN or somebody else reported, all of the oh it was the hollywood reporter reported all of his demands that he gave to universal please read them to me or at uh, least tell me what you know yes so because i i i bet they are wonderfully <laughs> nolan um so i guess he's he's demanding a hundred million dollar production budget mm-hmm. I feel like that's small it is small yeah <laughs> or at least you know um, well it's an oppenheimer film so i feel like he probably needs to Instead of it being two hundred million, how about we go down to a hundred? Yeah, well, how does that feel? It says here in this article that he's targeting a hundred million, something he apparently considers smaller scale. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is compared to him. D- demanded an equal <laughs> marketing budget, so a hundred million marketing as well as production. <laughs> um, total creative control, twenty yes. percent of box office gross for him, like yeah. personally, twenty yeah, percent. Um, and a blackout period in which the studio can't release a movie three weeks before or after. What? Yeah, that's the biggest so one. So almost a month of nothing except for his film. Yeah. So three, he, no, three weeks before or three weeks after. That's I know, a month I, and a half total gap of like nothing but. A month and a half of nothing from Universal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good thing they have Peacock though, right? I guess. I mean. <laughs> That just means, like, thank God. <laughs> oh, and plus a hundred day theatrical window before it goes to any streaming. Ah, that makes sense. So that that I mean, one makes yeah. more sense because that's kind of a natural well, even, yeah, that's, theatrical that's run. That's more three than months. twice as much, which is now gonna, which is now I think gonna be the norm for most studios, which is forty five. Forty five day, yeah. Because I thought it was just a Disney thing, but it seems like most studios are now doing the forty five day thing. Yeah, which is like wild. But no, my yeah, my jaw kind of dropped when I read about the three week or the I six had week no blackout. Idea about the blackout period. It's just like, I assumed he was going to be like, I want a hundred million. Right. I did not expect he's like, I want a month and a half total of just nothing. Right. Going up against me, which is insane. It which, is kind it, of insane. It's an it, interesting sort of retaliation to the whole. Scarlett Johansson debacle. Absolutely. Um, it's obviously the pendulum was swung way one way and now it's swinging way the other way. Um, yeah. But it's, well, it's, it's also, an interesting it's, it's, time to be watching movies yeah. get made. And also, I mean, kind of dress the elephant in the room. Same day, same same day as theater. HBO Max deal. Oh yeah. Like it's super clear that that's the reason why he's pissed because. Oh yeah. Because I mean, I mean, I know his film didn't apply to that, but that only happened because he fought so hard for that not to happen yeah he was very against he was he yeah he is genuinely one of the one of the biggest auteurs at the moment who genuinely believes that 
I mean, you can't, you shouldn't watch my shit in theater or shit in, at home. You right. can't, yeah. it doesn't matter how big your 4K TV is, Andy. I want you to see my film in the fucking yeah, theater. Yeah. Like, that's the kind of guy he is. <laughs> and it's like, I, I can see why people don't like him and why they think he's pretentious for saying something like that. But like, I gotta, gotta respect a man who knows what he wants. Yeah. He needs, he needs at least a hundred million for both marketing and film. Yeah. And a black up. You know, and <laughs> also, you know, he knows his worth. I mean, you, like you said, he's one of the biggest auteur filmmakers working right now. He's yeah. one of the few who is kind of considered in that pantheon, pantheon of artistic cinema, artists yep. who also kind of makes blockbusters every time absolutely and um, even his so even... he has a lot of power and he's using it and i think he's he's kind of this is his response to the way things have gone with the theater industry in the pandemic and yeah so. and it's like he even his this is gonna be a hot take i would say his weakest film in my opinion that he's had post dark knight rises which is that might be his in, weakest sense. Uh, I mean, it, I think Interstellar is my least That's favorite fair. post there. But, like, even that made hundreds of millions. Like, even mm-hmm. when his films have enough uh, enough wiggle room to poke holes into things, it does not stop him from making these gigantic, beautiful blockbusters that are doing something that is not a Marvel or a Disney property yeah. or... It's not a weird old obscure twenties property that someone's trying to make in two thousand and twenty. Like it's, <laughs> it's just him doing his own thing. And it, honestly, it makes sense too to do this because they, I think he's gonna—they're gonna be like, "Well, why this?" And it's like, "Well, Dunkirk worked. Why do you think I can't do this again yeah. with like Oppenheimer?" And it's yeah. like, "Fuck it. I guess we got to yeah, give when it I, to him." When I first heard he was gonna do a World War Two movie, I was like, "Ah, again, like yeah, we're not moving past, but." Oppenheimer's definitely a very different angle than, you know, Dunkirk was. So oh, yeah. it's, it'll oh, be yeah. less probably boots on the ground and more mm-hmm. um, philosophy, bureaucracy, ethics, yes. science. Oh yeah. So and it's that's not saying it won't be good. I'm I'm excited for it regardless because yeah. again, even his weakest stuff, I'm again just a hundred percent on board to see oh, yeah, cr- crazy will. Christopher Nolan just do his own stuff until he just starts pumping out turds consistently, which yeah. I don't think he ever will. Um, I no. will always be there to watch a Chris Nolan movie. It's, it's right really away. not. It's hard not to be like, well, they. I think even Universal at one point was like, hey, at least it's not Tenant. Yeah. Which this is coming from somebody who enjoys the shit. I enjoyed, out of Tenet. I enjoyed Tenet, I, but yeah. I, It's at least this is less of a gamble. I think right, giving him a yeah. hundred million for. An easy, a like... Historical movie. Yeah, like, war bad Oppenheimer biopic. Yeah, right. Then, like, uh, Tenet 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> yeah. Which way are we going? That, like, right, that yeah. type of thing. So, yeah, it'll be curious to see what it is. And it's... I feel like this is going to be the next couple months, especially going into 2022, we're going to hear more stuff about other filmmakers probably going to other studios. Or yeah, other demanding certain things, expecting certain things. Yes. Yeah. I so, think, I mean, we saw a few other kind of lawsuits pop up in the wake of the ScarJo Disney lawsuit. Yes. So uh, we might see more of that. Mm-hmm. I um, think even Emma Stone, like, Emma Stone, I revitalized saw, I, her, like, a contract for Corella 2 yeah. just to make sure. Yeah, something along those lines. Which is wild. Yeah. But, yeah. And I guess the last thing we should probably reference is, unfortunately, the passing of Norm Macdonald. Yeah, yeah, a little little bit of a, well, a major bummer to anybody who yeah. follows comedy, um, whether comedy films or stand-up comedy. Norm mm-hmm. had, a, I mean, obviously a huge influence and presence 
throughout that world. Yeah. And I was a huge fan personally. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was a great example of like a a pillar of comedy that like he wasn't inter- he wasn't like super huge now, but like anytime no. he showed up in anything, I was excited. Yeah. I was always down to be like, why is he in this? <laughs> right. Like, and I'm I'm fine with it regardless. I mean, I think. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I even tried that, like, Mike Tyson Adult Swim, like, yeah, mystery show, I, because yeah. he plays a pigeon. Yeah, and I've so, seen, like, I've seen episodes here and there, and it's it's kind of fun. And, yeah, he's just... Uh, but, yeah, he's he was he's a favorite of mine mm-hmm. in terms of uh, comedians, and uh, I think he a lot of people kind of mischaracterize him as, like, an anti-comic or an anti-comedy no, yeah. comedian, and he... I mean, many times went on record as resenting the concept of anti-comedy or whatever. I think he was just somebody who he, he, you know, he thought what he thought was funny and he'd deliver that and, you know, make it, spin it in his norm way. And, you know, not everybody was going to grab onto it, Mm -hmm. but clearly, clearly other comedians did because, you know, if you watch interviews with other comedians talking about norm they're all like oh norm norm is the best comedian he's He's the funniest he was just like a genuinely nice guy when he needed to be and when jokes didn't go his way he never was like never blamed the audience yeah that would always just be like "Ah, i guess it just didn't work this time around i'll still use it he 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 had kind of a reputation as sort of a, a you know a boomer among comedians but i appreciated that he was not a part of really a part of that sort of no uh comedian mindset that you see a lot of now where it's just like you know we can't say anything because we're getting canceled normally like, like i can say whatever i want yeah he no, was like, like no i'm gonna cares. say it and if i have yeah. to apologize <laughs> i guess oh, i'll apologize yeah. but i'm like it's not gonna stop me yeah um yeah i mean yeah, it he sucks. was yeah he had what battled cancer for almost 10 years and nobody uh, yeah. knew nobody, uh, yeah, nobody was really like, was about knew nine years he just never brought it up yeah and it's interesting now looking back because he's talked about both in his stand-up routine and in interviews and like podcasts and stuff he's talked about the topic of cancer and now he doesn't like the idea of talking about it or making your life about it because yes. people view you differently and it's just yeah. weird now looking back and listening it makes perfect to this sense like now why he, he clearly already had cancer at that point and was yeah. that was kind of his way i guess of you know dealing or not addressing mm-hmm. it and man Pulled oh, yeah. one over on us. Rest in power, King. I mean, <laughs> really, I mean, really, in all honesty, even though that sounds silly to say, but like, honestly, he's just like always been hilarious. Anytime I watch a clip of this, and even when he's not as funny as maybe he used to be, he still is funny as shit. Yeah. I mean, I would recommend if no one has looked up these YouTube. There's a compilation of him shitting on OJ during the OJ yeah. trial. That's some yeah. of the best stuff he did on SNL. The stuff that actually got him fired on <laughs> SNL. Yeah, weekend update compilations for sure. And Conan compilations. And then there's one bit he does on comedians and cars getting coffee about Cosby. That's oh, probably yeah. one of my favorite, just modern. Honestly, bits. that like best is... best execution of a bit like that of it's a joke. Hypocrisy. It's good. <laughs> um, no, oh. but he. I mean, his whole episode on comedians and cars getting coffee is phenomenal yeah but so, yeah rest just, in peace norm um and we should probably get to the actual episode i i think so i mean to kind of <laughs> try to bring him back up in some way shape or form hello everyone i'm logan Sowash. and i'm andy carr and this is our trilogies with logan and andy now on our trilogies we take a trio of films whether tied by number by cast and crew or even thematic elements and we talk about each film surrounding the good the bad 
and the Weird. And today, we have a bit of a niche trilogy because it's something that we I have concocted. <laughs> yeah. So we thought, like, you know, after doing The Mummy, even though that wasn't planned, we felt like, you know what? Why why not get like a fan suggested one? One that we kind of had in the in the right. in the wings for a while. We we threw it we threw it out to play and it, and I think it we worked threw out. Threw you guys favor. a bone. It was easy, you know. There's a one, two, and three. Right. You know, it it got it, it was the best that the first one got a little bit worse <laughs> in the sequel, and then the third one sucked ass. Yeah, right. Easy to talk about. In this one, it's going to be a different because we are talking about three films in a director's filmography that are. The outliers, to a degree, yeah, in his overall filmography. A filmmaker and, who is kind of known for his trilogies. Yes, honestly. Uh, and this is even technically when he, not one. Even when he does a film that ends up becoming a trilogy, but doesn't do the sequels, he has. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has trilogies in his uh, catalog, and we're talking about today. We are talking about Sam Raimi specifically, but not Evil Dead or not Spider Man. We are talking about. The dramas of Sam Raimi, because in the 90s, for almost a decade, yeah. all he did were dramas that had nothing to do with horror. Nothing to and, do with horror. No. So, nothing I mean, to do with a consistent storyline, different yeah. kind of subgenres. I mean, in case you need a backstory on Sam Raimi, he is the man who is behind the Evil Dead trilogy, is wildly known for all three films, mm. uh, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, which, which I think also has a subtitle Dead by Dawn in certain places, and also Army of Darkness. Which I think that trilogy spanned a decade as well. Yes, it's like 81 to, 92 80, or something. 81 to 92, because yeah. 92 is Army of Darkness. And after he did Army of Darkness, from, the, from 1995 to 1999, he had three films that are absolutely nowhere near close to the Evil Dead films. No. And even after those films, when he does the Spider-Man trilogy, none of these films even really tie too much into those as well, except yeah. for some aesthetic choices and maybe some camera choices. Yeah, I mean the yeah the Raimi style is at least somewhat apparent in all of his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think yeah, what we've got here in the late '90s, which we'll get more into, is kind of him playing in other sandboxes yeah and and i thought it'd be interesting we thought it'd be interesting to talk about the reason why he did these three films as well as what these three films are about because they are not three dramas that are of the same ilk they are literally a western drama a crime drama and a baseball romance drama yeah three vastly different types of films in the span of four years that are vastly interesting when you think the fact that Sam Raimi, the man behind Evil Dead, <laughs> is it tied to them in some way, shape, or form. So we might as well, talking about that, go into the first film in that trilogy, which is 1995's The Quick and the Dead. A western starring a wild cast, but it also rocks. <laughs> Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, Leonardo DiCaprio, Keith David, <laughs> Lance Henriksen... Like you have like uh, oh the j- saw guy Tobin Bell Tobin Bell is in it. Yeah. There's Jigsaw. a lot of people in this film, and it is a it is a film that is basically about a western about a woman who wants revenge for her was her father was a sheriff played by Gary Sinise. I forgot yeah. that he was the father who comes back to this old town for a shootout competition so she could take on the man who killed her father. A classic western idea. It's insane to watch it now because it's all these stars are in this. Yeah. And it's in it's just overall talking about the quick and the dead. 
it is just a cut and dry, very fun time. Yeah. It's a Sam Raimi Western. I think this one is probably the most, this is the most Sam Raimi out of the three of these. Absolutely, yeah. In terms of if you're thinking of his visual style and kind of camp from Army of the Dead and what later shows up in the Spider-Man movies, this one definitely drips of Raimi the most. Um, And it's a blast. Yeah, and it's, it's clear, too, that that's why he's brought on. Yeah. Because he's brought on mainly because Sharon Stone, who is a producer and the lead in this film, was looking for a director and gave basically this list of directors who could do the film. And she went, if I can't get Raimi, I don't want to do it. And people are like, why do you want Sam Raimi of all people? It's because <laughs> she liked his work and specifically Army of Darkness. Yeah. Like she had seen Army of Darkness and liked his style, liked how campy and fun and energetic he was. And he's like, why don't we bring him on this film? Yeah. And he, and it was one of the best parts about Raimi in all three of these films is I don't think any of these films he doesn't approach the topics as if he's better than these topics. No, it's like, he like picks... he's it's like he's, you know, even even more than like oh, he loves the genre and just wants to pay tribute to it. It's more like he's just like exploring the genre and like oh yeah, seeing what he can do with it and what it what is available to him. Um I mean, I feel like in The Quick and the Dead you see it's kind of like a mosaic of just all the different eras of Westerns mixed in with yeah. 90s Sam Raimi. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's it's very spaghetti Western, but it's also got a lot of kind of the more classical, good and evil, black and mm-hmm. white Westerns. John Wayne hero type yeah, with yeah. Stone. And... Um, but yeah, it's just definitely all of these feel like he's just trying to branch out. Yeah, and explore, and which is which is a common theme. Yeah. yeah, which is a common theme with this trilogy because, cut and dry, pretty much he did this film because he was like, I've never done a western before, and they yeah. want me to do it, so why not? Right. Let's think about the things that have never been done in westerns, and let's try them. And the things he do, yes, are wild because it's like you go into a western thinking, oh. If someone gets shot, they just fall over. <laughs> and then you watch this film, and then Keith David, like the majority of his head gets blown out one time yeah, right. by a, by a <laughs> he gets bullet. gets a huge tube blown through his yeah, head. Uh, yeah. yeah, by a single bullet. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is this is a Raimi Western. Right. Like, and it's also the fact that like it shows yet again, the, the script, I can't remember who wrote the script, but I know it was it was an original story, and I think the guy who wrote the script did a really good job, especially with characterization. Both him and Raimi do a great job of creating characters who are not excessively deep, but have enough depth to them that you can't help but enjoy them when they show up on screen. Yeah, Simon Moore was the screenwriter. Yeah. Simon Moore does a great job with like just a lot of the writing there. And like I think Sharon Stone's character is great. This is Russell Crowe's first American film. Yeah. And he was and he was a choice that Stone wanted too. Stone was like, I want him. <laughs> and they're like, Why do you want this guy? This guy's an Australian that no one knows. And he's like, Well, I saw that one Australian film that I liked him <laughs> and I want him. Don't yeah. don't stop me. Same with Leo. Like it's it's Sharon Stone did a <laughs> a damn good job picking yeah. the director, Crow, and DiCaprio. And it's insane too to watch this film and be like, This is a time where DiCaprio wasn't just known as now he's kind of known as like one of the last big old school movie stars to a degree right but he, the modern example of that yeah and at this time he had only done 
I think his his biggest film was What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah. But even then, it didn't propel him yet, because this is two years before right. Romeo plus Juliet. Yeah, I think this, or Gilbert, What's Eating Gilbert Grape kind of put him on the map, but didn't, yeah. you know, cement him as a star, and neither, <laughs> neither did this film. But um, no, 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 he no. certainly was not the the widely beloved heartthrob yet and because so it's interesting much, to see him kind of play and just more not, it's yeah. not a bit part it's a major role but you know very much a supporting role where he's not stealing the scene and yeah you know that sort of thing i think even sharon stone there's a scene where sharon stone kisses leonardo DiCaprio, which he's 19 in the film yeah he looks younger than he, he actually does, is yeah. in the film because i think at one point i was watching this with adam and adam's like how old is he? Yeah. Or Adam or Jake were oh, like, yeah, she, yeah. like, how old is he? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, She's kissing him, and it's like, He's 19. They perhaps do <laughs> more than him. kiss. No, I, that's an insinuation. I don't think they actually do that. I think he's it's just left open. It is left open, but I feel like it's just him being cockier and just being a goof <laughs> more than anything. But yeah, it's just like, it's weird watching this and hearing like Sharon Stone be like, "Yeah, I, I kissed him. It, it was nothing." Like thinking yeah. of, like someone kissing Leonardo DiCaprio and saying, "Ah, he just yeah. he's just a kid." Well, eh, it's whatever. like I mean, Sharon Stone was the sex icon of the time, not Absolutely. not Leo. Which Leo's I think is another reason why she does this is because she's not a character yeah. who is inherently. I mean, she is. I mean, Sharon Stone is sexy and she's attractive. She's a great actress. And it's clear in this film that she's one of the only women in this film. So, of course, all the men in an Old West town are going to be like, who, when she walks yeah, into a room. She's filling the kind of stoic loner yeah. hero role. But she, um, she's but she is dressed very conservatively for most of the film. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's not trying to oppose a sexiness as if that's her only character. Right. Her, her big thing is revenge and... Has one of the best, I think, honestly, one of my favorite hurdles in any in any like protagonist should ever have, especially in this day and age, which is like the ability to kind of accept to kill somebody, especially with like an action film like mm-hmm. this, where it's like she just cannot bring herself to kill someone, even if they are a gigantic piece of shit. Right. Which is like that's extremely human and so weird compared to how action films are now. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to like death tolls and whatnot. Right. Well, and it's also interesting, just like. Because, I mean, it's it's a Western, all yes. about gunslinging. People are dying left and right in this movie. Oh, yes. And even she is characterized as kind of a, you know, a badass who knows what she's doing. Yeah. You know, but she has this hang-up about killing people, which, I mean, isn't directly addressed, at least until the later in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of just assume for a minute that she's as, you know hardened and cold-blooded as everybody else just because of the way she acts and mm-hmm. the way she um, treats people. There's but... even, like, this film, which is very goofy in a good way. Again, yeah, it's silly. Raimi, Raimi knows how to do schlock well and goofiness well and feel like it actually builds on the characters rather than taking away from the narrative. But, like, in a film like this, there is a dark aspect of oh, it. It's where very it's, grim. Yeah, there's one... I mean, it's like that's the thing, too, is, like... There's the aspect of the fact that, like, anytime anyone dies in a shootout, people are just stealing everything on their body. Yeah, there's because like a, everyone swarm, is, a swarm of townspeople. Because yeah, they're all just poor. Vulturing. Because they're in a corrupt town called Redemption where Gene Hackman is just stealing all, they're taxing all their money. Yeah, he's just taxing this kingpin all who basically owns the town and takes, yeah, 50% of all revenue and just holds yeah. these people in an iron grip in the middle of the desert and they can't go anywhere or do anything. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's an aspect, too, there's, like, it's not even really a side story, per se, but there's a girl 
that looks up to Sharon Stone in the film who ends up getting physically involved with a full grown man. Oh yeah. And it's the bar, it's the bar, it's the uh, saloon owner's daughter. Yeah. And then it, it goes like, I don't know what it's supposed to imply, but like it just, it goes bad and every, and like Sharon Stone just hates him Yeah, because he's, he's preying on a child. But right. It's the wild west. And it's like, in most times it's like, I was like, okay, is this go where I think it's going? And it does where it's like her, it turns out the next shootout she has to do is with this piece of shit <laughs> and leads to a great moment where like, it's, if there's any time where she's going to mow a guy down, it's this asshole. Yeah. And then she does. And then she like basically throws up and mm-hmm. feels bad and feels awful and leads into later on finding out in the film another dark aspect is that she has killed before she accidentally kills her dad. Yeah. When Gene Hackman was like, all right, basically, if you shoot, yeah, if you shoot the Gene noose, Hackman. your dad will go free. And then she shoots her dad. It's like oh, this yeah. goofy Western is just putting these things out it's, and it's still working. Yeah. Like, so grim and so serious and yet pervasively silly and yeah. goofy and trying to have a good time. And I mean, it's basically like, uh, like an, you know, anime tournament arc. Yes. Because <laughs> the yeah. whole movie is a dueling tournament. Yeah, because I was genuinely thinking like, oh my God, like, is Leonardo, Leonardo, Leo's got to go against Russell, right? Oh no, are they going to, who's going to kill? Neither right. one can die, right? Yeah. There's well, no and, way. Like, there's just it's all like, these very clearly defined kind of archetypal characters yes. thrown into this tournament. So it's like, oh, we've got the show off and we've got the... Oh, Lance Henriksen is ace. And is the like... hired gun and the the cocky kid and the, you know, nonviolent preacher. And it's just like, oh man, this is a cartoon. Oh, it's great. Lance Henriksen's ace, whose his entire outfit is just black and red with playing cards embroidered into certain <laughs> parts of his an outfit. entirely leather outfit in the middle of the desert. Adam perfectly said, he was like, he looks like a Red Dead Redemption 2 custom character. Yeah, like a Red Dead Online yeah, character. Yeah, he just looks like a custom character in a Western game. And yeah. it's great because most, they all do. Oh, yeah. Like, there's the one guy who... Yeah, it's, Sharon it's, Stone's wearing a jacket that's, like, way too big oh, for her. Oh, it's beautiful. It's and beautiful. And it's great. Uh, there's Scars. Scars. There's he's a runaway a, prisoner, escaped convict. Yeah, who's the corrupt cop? I think that's the corrupt cop from Batman Begins. Yes, he is. Yeah. Uh, he just has scars all over his face. And he's just a giant he, asshole. He cuts... He makes cuts into his arm every time he kills somebody. So he has yes. marks. So he's like Zaz from yeah. fucking Batman. Yeah. And there's Keith David, who looks gorgeous in the film, and is like the only one who smokes a pipe, and he smokes yeah. like on balconies, and he looks yeah. from afar. He's a professional gunslinger. Yes, and he's been hired to take out Gene Hackman, which yeah. fortunately doesn't happen because he gets a giant Coke can hole <laughs> he gets in his a brain. a cylinder of brain removed yeah. from Which his is head. great because it's like you see that, and you're like, I know exactly how they did that, and I love it. <laughs> I love how practical and just like, I get it. I know it's 95, and they can't right, really use CG as much, but stuff. like. It's great how hands-on and practical a lot of Raimi's projects are. Yeah. Because of his upbringing of, like, having to do it yourself. Yeah. And it leads to a film that just has, like, yes, it is silly and and kind of concept where it's, like, in the final brawl, the final shootout, Gene Hackman and Sharon Stone shoot each other. 
Sharon Stone gets hit. Gene Hackman thinks he wins, and then he looks down, and in this silhouette, there's a hole, and the sunlight comes <laughs> yeah, through Yeah, there's it. a sunbeam coming through his the bullet hole. And it's silly, but it also is so cool and so something you don't see in westerns. Yeah, it's like... Which is basically what Raimi does in this whole film, which is like, yeah. this would be cool in a western, Let's wouldn't it? Let's give you all of the western things that you know and love and also throw some weird stuff at you that you wouldn't have expected. Yeah, which is like, I guess this is the perfect answer of what would Raimi do with a Western? Do his usual weird shit while also just doing a Western. Like, that's kind of what it is. And let's have, like, goofy bullet physics and funny kind of slapstick jokes, but also let's have a guy murder his son in cold blood. Let's have a dude prey on an underage girl. But also have, like, a genuinely interesting premise of, like, Russell Crowe plays a criminal turned like, uh, like Baptist kind of preacher. Like yeah. he's, he's like a born he used again to be preacher. an outlaw, and then he found yeah. God and became a preacher and a pacifist. He's one of the fastest hands in the West, and he's only there solely because Hackman wants to go up against him because he knows if anyone can yeah. take him out, it's probably Crow. They even gave him a shitty gun, and Crow wins every one of his bouts. <laughs> Oh, that's another character. The other character is the Native American who can't die. Oh yeah, the, oh that's he's a great. He's great. Bit. He's the great. Invincible that's a great Native moment. American. He just and he has all these bullet holes where they try <laughs> to kill him and they can't kill him, and then like Russell Crowe gets him once, but doesn't kill him. Yeah, and no one will give him a bullet. Well, yeah, except for the yeah, Gene Hackman kid. or God, I can't remember the guy's name. Gene Hackman's character, but he. Uh, yeah, he, like, rigs it so that the preacher only ever gets one bullet. Yes, yes. And then the blind kid who owns the shoe, st- shoe shine yeah. setup has bullets in his little <laughs> drawer. And that's, I mean, that's another thing, too, is, like, Gene Hackman, for the good chunk of the film, is, like, just, like, the standard mustache-twirling Western villain. Yeah. You just want to see him get shot. Right. But then there's a scene with him and Sharon Stone where they're sitting down talking where he explains to a degree his backstory and he becomes so much more interesting. Yeah, well, then he develops another layer with his son character. Yeah, yeah, supposedly Leonardo DiCaprio is, his character, the kid, is Gene Hackman's son, but but we don't ever see if that's, like, an actual truth or not. It's, like, always kind of implied it is, but Gene Hackman, as a, his character just will never admit when he's wrong or when he actually is, like, hurt or has flaws, so he's never going to admit he abandoned a child. Right. So he just pretends that he didn't, but then ultimately kills him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it goes to his final bout, and it's and it's also like ninety minutes. Yeah, it's like cut again. It's just like it's almost like watching a Carpenter film. It's like wow, ninety <laughs> minutes. All right. Yeah, it's just get very, right into very it. brisk and breezy. It just ends. That's also one of my favorite parts about the film is that. Hackman dies, the town is saved, Crow becomes the new sheriff. Sharon Stone rides just off, leaves. Yeah, and then that's the end. Like. Yeah. Raimi seems to kind of have almost like that Carpenter mentality of like, is maybe Simon Moore as well as the writer, where it's like, ah, end it where it needs to end. Everything's yeah. been taken care we, of. The we day is saved. told this big, ridiculous story. We yeah. don't need to like set up what's happening afterward. There's, I mean, uh, the third film in this trilogy kind of also does that as well, but it also has issues in terms of how long it gets to that point. Also not as, just not as fun. No, it's not as fun. So... Yeah, and again, when this film came out, like I think Andy alluded to earlier, it did not do that well critically. It was yeah. kind of mixed. Because I think a lot of people, again, which Raimi and pretty much any director who tries to genre hop and try new things always deals with, most people go like, this is a Raimi film? Like, this Yeah, is... there, there's that element of like, so this is silly. not what people expect from Raimi. Also, I can't imagine a worse or at least, you know, a less 
culturally vital time to release a western well i mean actually the mid 90s at that point i guess there was tombstone they were at that point i think they just had too many westerns well, like it the, was like super saturated up through the yeah. 70s and stuff. Because like with the late 80s with Young Guns with Emilio yeah. Estevez up to like 99 almost. Because I think Unforgiven with Eastwood and Hackman is like two years after this. Oh, yeah. So like, yeah, with this, with that, Tombstone, Young Guns, and just like other Westerns getting put in there. For some reason, the 90s felt like, let's bring in a Western. Yeah. And it just and seemed they're like all at just that played time, incredibly straight. I mean, a lot of those yeah. are good movies, but yeah. they're straight westerns. They're serious. They're um, like serious. Almost and sometimes here's this kind of goofy, like, like pr- production value and uh, adherence to physics on par with like those old westerns. Yeah, it's, it's it like embraces a, that kind of goofiness. It's like the classic, more kind of bombastic uh, John Wayne kind of yeah. western. Kind of taken from that angle. People like, getting just mm-hmm. pulling off ridiculous shots from far away and people falling off of buildings. What if and we stuff. made more graphic Sergio Leone like shootouts? Yeah. Like, that's kind of all it is. And I think it works to that favor and I feel like it's gotten a bit more love as time has gotten away from that. Yeah, but I don't think it fit in with no, where I, Westerns were at. at I, the I think time. it didn't. It wasn't a big enough noise at that time right. to do anything. And. Because of that, the film doesn't really make its money back. It makes a decent chunk of money. It has a score by Alan Silvestri, which is yeah. nuts that he's a part of that. Yeah. Um, but he does the film. It doesn't hurt Raimi's career at all. It's just he probably wasn't going to do another Western anytime soon from there. <laughs> so his next film <laughs> in this trilogy. <laughs> no, I never will again. But that's a whole other thing where I think at a certain point in his career, yeah, he's he doing just preferred producing and helping other creators do their own thing. Yeah. Just like kind of got didn't really want to do an evil dead again right. until he had an idea and maybe he'll do that like at when like when ash versus the evil dead finally happened like he directed an episode or two and helped produce it and write it from here and there but like right. it took like 20 years <laughs> at <laughs> least before we could kind of get to that point but yeah i mean going out of quick and the dead his next film which is in the trilogy is 1997's a simple plan which I cannot say is just vastly different in every way. Oh yeah, even <laughs> the and, and the even further from anything yeah. Raimi had done before, is, or at least been known for. His most, I would say, from what I've seen of all of his stuff, and it's easy to say that I'm probably not making a hot take here. It's his most nuanced film, directing wise, um, or at least his most. I don't know, reserved or understated. Yes, I think that's what I, I it, would say. It relies like, the least on the camp and the yeah. heightened sense of reality that so, he yeah. does in his other movies. A Simple Plan's a thriller a crime drama starring Bill Paxton, Billy Bob Thornton, Jane Fonda, Brent Bisco or Briscoe, mm, Brisco. um, who will later show up in another Raimi film uh, as the garbage truck man in Spider-Man 2. He's the one who finds the oh, yeah. uh, suit. Um, but... This film is based off of a novel that was bought. The rights were bought by Mike Nichols, known for The Graduate oh, yeah. fame. And from that point onward, out of all three of these films, this is the film where director after director gets tied and doesn't do it. Yep. Um, at one point, Ben Stiller is attached to help with the script and I think maybe even star. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't go anywhere except I think the author himself was able to do the screenplay because of Stiller's help, but Stiller didn't stick on and it goes, I think, like Mike Nichols to John Dahl, I think to another director, and then it ends on John Borman, who does the location scouting for the film in, like, 96, 
And as they're starting to shoot the film, I think he just like leaves the production or like he gets fired because at the same time, all this is happening. The production company that started producing this film got, I think eaten up by another production company. (laughs) And then I think that production company either got eaten up by Paramount or Paramount just bought the rights to the film mid production by Paramount which is now, if you want to watch this film and you have, you know, everyone's favorite streaming service, Paramount Plus, it is on there. And you have to look up the entire title because I tried to look up just Simple Plan and it said it wasn't there. I had right. to look up the just whole a Simple Plan. It's an yeah. important article. Yeah, it is. It de- definitely is. But at the time when the when John, I think John Borman is the director who was like actually was about to direct it and then unfortunately left the project. While that was happening, they decided to go with Raimi, and Raimi did this film exactly why I did The Quick and the Dead. Yeah. He had never done a crime drama before. He wanted to test himself and challenge himself to do a lower-budget film that wasn't horror. Yeah. And what we get is, in all honesty, I think this movie's kind of fucking great. Yeah, it's awesome. I, th- I think it's great. I think it's shocking how good this movie is. I mean, this is a, this is a great example film to show to anybody when they say, when like, because I, I agree, I believe that dramas can be just as energetic and as intense as like an action film. Yeah. And this is a film that shows that because the interactions from time to time are so nuanced and just like filled with depth and have right. like intense moments put in there that it's just like, <laughs> it feels like an action set piece, but with words yeah, I and mean, social interaction. <laughs> I mean, like if you, if you watched uncut gems and were like riveted by the concept of this character who just keeps digging themselves deeper and yes. deeper and it's just this anxiety inducing mess of lies and bad yeah. choices that's kind of what this movie is it's yeah. it's i mean the the title says it all it it's starts a as a plan. simple plan yeah. and it just goes absolutely wrong in every way yeah the the premise of bill paxton plays he works at a mill yeah, he a, works at a grain mill. mill. Yeah, yeah, he works at a grain mill. His brother, played by Billy Bob Thornton, and his brother's douchebag of a friend, played by Brad yeah, well, Briscoe. He's, uh, Billy Bob Thornton's kind of the idiot brother. He's it's, the idiot brother. He's not. He doesn't have any sort of like disorder ascribed to him, but he's no. kind of just dull and yeah, you, dumb. You find out later in the film that a lot of that has to do with, I think, the parents put a lot of the effort into giving the education to Paxton. Yeah. While Billy Bob Thornton was basically, it seemed like he was going to probably be a farmhand for the rest of his life. Yeah, Bill Paxton is Hank, Hank and Billy Bob Thornton Jacob, is Jacob, and, and Lou. Lou is Jacob's friend. Yes. Jacob's kind of douche friend. Yeah, so the trio are just minding their own business, and then they get pulled into a forest due to a fox that nearly got them to be into a wreck. Well, they, yeah, well, they, they they were driving down a road, and it's yes. the whole film takes place in heavy snow. Um, yeah, almost like a Fargo-esque kind yeah, of Yeah, it is very... I mean, the vibe of the movie is very Fargo-esque, and it's interesting because, actually, I think Sam Raimi got Since, some tips from the Coen brothers yeah, on how to snow. shoot this movie yeah. because of Fargo. Um, but, yeah, very... Aesthetically, very Fargo. Um, and they're... The three of those guys are driving their truck down the road. I can't remember what they're doing, but they... Basically, a fox runs across them, yeah. makes them wreck their truck. Jacob and Lou get out and are like, we get, we're we going to go kill this fox. Mm-hmm. And so they chase it into In the woods. In a national reserve. Yeah, they chase it onto a, a wildlife reserve. Or yeah. A, yeah, nature preserve. And they, find a crashed plane. Which has $4.4 4 million in it. <laughs> yeah. 
and they decide, well, Hank basically Hank is kind of immediately like, well, we yeah. got to turn it in. Yeah, Hank is basically like, what if we tu- we need to turn this in? You know, maybe we'll get a reward for it, and then both then we'll lose specifically because again, what's also interesting about this film is that Billy Bob Borton's Jacob is very indifferent from most yeah, of the he's actual very interview. malleable. Yes. The entire film, he's being yes. kind of manipulated and pulled around by everybody. Yeah. And Lou is like, well, what if we just, like, hit it, wait to see if, they f- if they're if they looking for it? And if they're not looking for it, what if we split it? Yeah. And that's when the film is basically, yes, that's the simple plan. Hide the money, wait until spring, and then if no if one's no coming one's, after yeah. it, we split the money three ways as best as we can. And, of course, like Andy alluded it is a simple plan that just gets more complicated. <laughs> and a lot of the reasons why it does is because, again, with that amount of money, it just changes your perception on how you live your life, on how you... Just basically, Bill Paxton's character just goes down a hole. Yeah. You can understand, but you just, at a certain point, you're like, I don't... It's one of he's, those... He's gone, he's gone deep already, and I don't know if I can pull him out of this. Right. And it's also one of those that's... You know, it's it's incredibly an incredibly empathetic journey because it's like, okay, well, I would like to say that I wouldn't, I wouldn't do all the yeah. things that he's doing, but I wouldn't I kill don't. a nice farmer to keep the four <laughs> yeah, million. But you know, it, for the most part, it keeps the situation such that it's like, man, I understand why he did that. Not right, and I would hope I wouldn't do it. Yeah, but I understand how that happened. Yeah, because I feel like that's <laughs> the biggest challenge with this film, at least for Raimi. And for the the author screenwriter, where yeah. it's like, how do you keep Paxton from going the route where it's like, I just cannot relate to it all? Yeah, you're, you're unforgivable. Just, you're yes. unlikable. And the way they evil. do that is just, there are great moments after horrible things like this happen, where he just like, well, the best moment I think that ex- explains this is like, they're trying to, so he has, gosh, there's so much to this film. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Think about it. Um, he decides at one point, he tells his wife about the money, his, uh, Bill Paxton's wife played by Bridget Fonda in the film tells him, we'll put like $500,000 in the plane Yeah, as like, not really as bait, but like pretend well, it's like, like that's if, all he has. Yeah. If somebody goes there and finds it and they find $500,000 might, maybe they'll think, oh, well this was all of it. Like yes, they wouldn't think yes. to search for more unless they knew for a fact that mm-hmm. there was more. So, uh, Jacob and Hank go out there. The farmer that's looking for the fox because the fox took one of his chicken, hit one of his hens, goes out there, and Jacob just like freaking out due to the social interaction, just like how it's not going the way he thinks, beats the guy over the head with the club. Yeah, Hank thinks he's Hank thinks he's dead. He's about to go take him somewhere random, and then he wakes up and then realizes that there's no way he can get out of this right. because he saw Jacob. He knows what Jacob did, so he smothers him in the snow. <laughs> And then makes it look like an accident going off a bridge. Yeah. And when you see this, I mean, at least for me, I saw this and I was like, okay, we're not even an hour in. Yeah, that was very quick descent. I was going to say, how the hell am I going to feel bad for this guy? Or at least even be like, well, I want him to still somewhat succeed. Right. And then there's a scene after all this where he's at home and on the news they're talking about the farmer who, who he killed. And... He, he just has a line where it's like, can I even come out of this? Mm-hmm. He's like, he already is immediately like he is regretting it. But at the same time, he's like, I did the right thing. Right. Like he's, he's questioning it enough and is doubtful enough of his own decisions that it's like, oh, 
I could relate to like not knowing the best yeah. way to handle the scenario. Right. And then ends up before he can, you know, really decide or even potentially redeem himself, he's suddenly becoming more and more influenced by the people around him. Specifically his wife, his wife. who I think has I would say deserves like the the sneakiest performance and I mean that in the best way because yeah. it's like Bridget Fonda when you initially see her she's a pregnant woman who is you know a loving wife yeah, and she's the glowing happy yeah. housewife and she kinda. and she was and she basically told Hank when Hank was like hypothetically speaking what if I found I don't know 4.4 million dollars in the woods yeah. she goes oh well you should put it in the police you know said the things that like anyone else would say in that regard and then Bill Paxton just dumps all the money on their kitchen table and goes well it's not a hypothetical and then what she turns into is extremely interesting, is incredibly nuanced in the performance, and is like Fonda killing it. Yeah, because kind of it ends up being a driving force of the whole, the yeah. big lie of it all. She she becomes like, I guess in a Game of Thrones terms, like a little finger yeah. type scenario where she's like, she's giving him advice on what to do because Bill Paxer for most of the film has no fucking clue what to do because he's <laughs> like, how do I keep these dumbasses from saying anything but also... How do I not just go insane holding this money? Right. And then she's like, oh, here are some ideas. And every single idea, excluding the last one, goes wrong. It never turns out well for them. Right. Where it's like the first time, hey, do this thing. The farmer ends up dead. Hey, you should do this thing so they can never use this as leverage for you. He does that. And Lou and his (laughs) wife gets killed. Yeah, and it's like it's actually one of my favorite parts of the film where Bill Paxton is. Oh, you want me to do what you're telling me? Like everything else you've said, everyone's <laughs> died because of your ideas. Yeah, and it's like he's not even saying like it's not his fault for going for the idea. He's just saying like, think about this. This money has made us so much worse <laughs> yeah, than we imagined. Yeah. And just in the middle of all of this, we have what I would consider one of the the main reasons to rewatch this film, which is Billy Bob Thornton's performance. Yeah. He's it phenomenal. Is, he's great. He's it's, it's, I keep forgetting that like, he's still working and it's just now has like consistent gigs. Like, yeah, he's got, right. I think an Amazon prime show that he's been doing for like years. Goliath, I think it's called. Oh yeah. But like, I like people constantly talk about like how he's apparently incredible in Fargo. And after watching this, I was like, Fuck it. I guess I gotta watch. The, I gotta <laughs> yeah. finally watch the FX series because, like, yeah. if he's least, at, if what, he's even a, an inkling as good as he is in this film, then I want to see it. Yeah. Because in this film, he plays the idiot brother, but he has his own arc that is so tragic and sad, yeah, it's so but sad. makes perfect sense in terms of his own mind where he's yeah. going. You just kind of worry about him the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, it, both as a way of like, God, this motherfucker is going to say something and it's yeah. going to ruin everything. To but the then it's like, like you worry about his well-being yeah. and like, like, oh, oh does, does... he's going to get forced into something else. Yeah, at a certain point, it's like you. it goes from, oh, is this idiot going to say something to, is Jacob basically alluding to suicide? And then you get yeah. to the finale of the film where he basically tells Bill Paxton like, you have to kill me. I'm going to say something. I can't not say something. This is going to hurt me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And then Bill Paxton kills his, Hank kills his own brother. Yeah. And it's such a good scene. It's so well acted all around. It's Billy Bob Thornton killing it. <laughs> like, it's just a great cast all around. I mean, Brent Briscoe also kills it. Yeah. He has a great moment where he's basically trying to shake down hank for his piece of the money and it's clear that the only reason why he's doing this is because he is unemployed 
He's not doing anything to change that, and he has so much in debt, including his car and his house, that now he is super desperate. Yeah. And it leads to a scene where he's trying to strong-arm Hank, and Hank is able to call his bluff enough that he just basically whittles down. Mm-hmm. And just is like, he's like, listen, man, I just, I just need that money. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh, man, I guess I really don't want $4.4 million to fall out of the sky, because this kind of sucks. Because <laughs> it's, it's such a sad movie, but it's so good. Yeah. So good. It reminded me a lot of um, Prisoners. The, oh, uh, that's a good, New that's film. a good, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just kind of one of those fairly typical people being driven to do horrible and convoluted mm-hmm. things uh, in the name of uh, self-preservation, basically. Yeah. Um, I think your Uncut Gems uh, Uncut Gems was, was also good, good yeah. too. I feel like this is closer to Uncut Gems if Uncut Gems didn't have almost like a cartoony but great performance yeah as well, it's a lead. Also, this is like not as kind of uncut gems i would call like stylistically an anxiety attack put to screen yes this is not quite that this is more a little bit below boiling below the surface where yeah. it's like you're gripped by the tension but i'm yeah. not like every scene just like ah, please stop the, the visual the visual kind of like coloring and just like the it's whole very film muted yeah, the whole film looks like if you're just in the middle of like a rural county and you get out of your car and you're just looking around going, I wonder if there's crimes happening nearby. <laughs> like that's kind of how this film yeah. feels where it's like it's in a podunk. I mean, it's very Fargo small, in that way. Yeah. It's, it's like Fargo without the humor. So right, it's, yeah. of course, really sad. Yeah. And just grim. Just grim. And But at the same time, it's very impactful, incredibly well acted. Yeah. Raimi it's just incredible to think that this is Sam, Sam Raimi. Raimi. Not, not only, that I would think he's incapable of it, but no. that I would think he would have no desire to make a movie this way. No, but at the same time, there are little moments that happen throughout the film. Sure, yeah. Where, like, it's so funny that, like, this film is so nuanced that when I see, like, just a slight Dutch angle, I go, oh, Raimi, you <laughs> You, you couldn't monster, help yourself. You madman, you had to put that Dutch angle in that scene. <laughs> or the fact that, like... When they find the plane, Bill Paxton goes in the plane, and there's a skeleton at the very front that is obviously just like apparently it was puppeteered. There were yeah. puppeteers in the credits, so they had a they made a skeleton doll that they puppeteered, in, right. which feels like such a rainy yeah. thing. It wasn't just like a a dead body that they never touched. Like yeah, it had to move around. Constantly. Yeah. At one point, doesn't like yeah his head like the character's head falls like the skeleton and like chunks of like uh frozen blood come out of his head yeah what is going on why are we putting so much into this but yeah it's just incredibly tight film script wise performances are great danny elfman puts in one of the most nuanced scores i've ever heard from him who i didn't know this either guess who danny elfman's married to bridget fonda oh (laughs) I did not know that. I think they got married a little bit after this film or around the same time. But um, another thing about Bridget Fonda is is this is the second film that Raimi has done with her. She actually, she she doesn't reprise. She plays Linda in the flashbacks of Army of Darkness when they Uh, say, like, here's the film. And it's like they got (laughs) Bridget Fonda for, like, five minutes max for Army of Darkness, which is wild. (laughs) Yeah. But, um... Yeah, it's it's just a great film all around. The ending, woof. The ending yeah. caught me so off guard, and I loved it. <laughs> I was so shocked by how it was like, oh, I don't know how this could get any worse. It just did. Yep. 
wow. Killed it across the board. It's a great film. If you have Paramount Plus and you're sick of watching old Survivor seasons or, you know, <laughs> Camp Coral, if you're just a, if you're loving the next all that. CBS primetime if, show. If you're excited for all the 36 SpongeBob shows in development, oh, uh, take your time out of your busy schedule to give this one a try. <laughs> yeah, this is really, well, well worth it. Even, this, even in spite of all the spoilers that we just dumped out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still like, just riveting. Absolutely. To see it all pull together. It's great. It's just all, all around just like a great time. And unfortunately, I knew after watching <laughs> yeah. this one that I was like, oh, Had a man, feeling. the next one is just going to end this one on kind of a meh note. And it does. Yeah. Our last film in our trilogy is the baseball romance drama. In case you couldn't tell with the other two films, that <laughs> this is the only one left. We are talking about 1999's For Love of the Game, starring Kevin Costner, Kelly Preston, John C. Riley, J.K. Simmons, Jenna Malone, again, yeah. Raimi and his killer cast. Like, yeah. it's just insane how it's, good cast. Like, John yeah, C. Riley, when of, he's still, like, a dramatic actor. Yeah, like, he's a just off the heels of also, Boogie like, Nights. <laughs> yeah, and also not yet a household name. Not at all. No, um, yeah. Got, like, at least another decade or so before right, Caladega. Right. And J.K. Simmons, also probably not a household name at this point, because <laughs> yeah. Spider-Man hadn't happened yet. No, which is funny, too, because apparently J.K. said that his character is supposed to be in his 60s, and he's only nine days older than Costner. Who's <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be playing Yeah, well, 40s. with that big old Ponderosa mustache and oh, that yeah, bald his, head. His Gordon mustache. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, For Love of the Game is just a baseball romance film. It is... A two-plus-hour film about the last game of an aging pitcher who looks back on his life and realizes the one thing he's always wanted but never truly had was the love of his life that he never would fully accept was the love of his life. Yeah, it's and kind of a kind of it. It's it's yeah, one part baseball movie, one part romance drama, and I guess the kind of question at the center of it is, you know. Is what makes a man a great athlete also what makes yeah. him bad in his personal life? Kind of. Which it seems uh, yes is the answer. Yeah, it to feels a like yes is the answer, <laughs> um, uh, despite the saccharine ending yeah. of it. Yeah. So similar to Simple Plan, this was also based off a book. And um, it, un- oh, we, well, no, we didn't. I mean, we forgot. To, I think I forgot to talk about with the Simple Plan. Critically, it did incredibly well. Oh yeah, it was really but well received. But it didn't. didn't make enough money back. It wasn't a full-on flop, but like it was a limited enough release that it was like a sixteen million dollar budget and made like seventeen eighteen. Yeah, which is not great. And again, it's not on Raimi. It's more the fact that like they just didn't know where to put it, so they put it in like January. Of 90, 98, when it was limited release in, like, Christmas of 97. Yeah. Like, that era. And it's like, that's the worst time for this movie to come out. Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. But um, after that, um, this film is based off a book as well. And it was originally supposed to be Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, and directed by Sidney Pollack. Which is insane. Of, you know, Three Days of the Condor, Tootsie fame. Yeah, Tootsie, just like... I, yeah. How many? I, I have to wonder if this would have been maybe a more, I don't know, subversive take on the genre with Pollock. I don't know. I don't know. Well, because it's also like the writer, I think, is still... I don't know if the author is still attached to this um, film. I don't think he wrote the script like a Simple Plans author did. Right. But I think he still is attached in some way. 
no, it's a different. Mm-hmm. It's Dana Stevens is the oh, screenplay. Michael gotcha. yes, Farah yes, is yes. the novelist. Mm-hmm. And when they were thinking about Cruz as the titular or the titular, you know, pitcher, um, Billy Chapel, which I do love that name. Yeah. The iconic pitcher in this film. Well, and for some reason, I always have a soft spot for characters who are like the i don't know like the the michael jordan of their craft in a movie like a fictional michael jordan type just like the best of the best everybody knows him and i love the kind of world building that always gets sprinkled it around that like fans and stuff here's my here's my mini side rant i'll try to be as fast as can be i do not actively look at sports at all we've really talked about this i mean my family is super into football and at my height I cared about college football enough yeah. to know kind of what's going on. Baseball could not give less of a shit. I liked Same. playing it when I was in middle school. I did not watch it. It always felt boring to me. However, baseball films are the shit <laughs> and are always a blast. And even when they're bad, I'm always like, oh, there's there's something to this where I can't fully hate this movie. Yeah, right. I will stand by to this day. That Moneyball is one of the easiest films to watch. <laughs> it is just like that is the perfect like. It's Sunday. It's raining. The electricity's yeah. like the 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 internet's out. All I can really watch is my DVD of Moneyball, <laughs> and I will watch it and enjoy it every time. Right. And with these films, I mean, with baseball films, you got Angels in the Outfield. You've got The Natural, which is great. Mm-hmm. A League of Their Own, Major League. You've like this is again in the nineties. A big part of like you know baseball films are coming yeah. back. The good Costner old day of America's past time. The dreams. That's the thing too is like I think this is technically the fourth Costner because I think one of his early films in the eighties is like a baseball film you can't find anywhere. Oh yeah. And then he does his like I think one of his biggest roles, Bill Durham, Bull in eighty eight. Bull Durham, thank yeah. you. I always think it's Bill. <laughs> uh, and then Field of Dreams the year after that. And then 10 years after Field of Dreams, he plays this. He's in this film yeah. where it's like basically what happens is they want Tom Cruise as Billy Chapel, But then Costner listens and Costner goes, listen, I will waive my $20 million fee to be in a movie <laughs> just so I could produce or just so I could be a part of this film. And Universal shook their head and went, yeah, no, $20 million, We don't have to pay for you. Okay. Right. And it's like it, they're like, we want it to be a $50 million baseball film. Which is insane to think now, but it's funny yeah. that that was a time where you could do that viably. Right. And what happens then is they're like, well, we need a director. And when Sam Raimi is kind of like thought of, again, similar to the other two films, he just is like, I've never done a baseball film before. <laughs> I'll, I, I, he's like, I've never seen baseball done cool. I want to kind of do something cool with baseball. Plus, of course, the man loves baseball. Like, just watching the film, I was like, he definitely just did this film because he likes the sport. <laughs> and it's like, he said, like, yeah, I've always loved baseball as a kid. It's like, well, there you go. Yeah. And it makes sense, too, that it's like, I think he's born and raised in Michigan, if not Detroit specifically, and the main team is the Detroit Tigers. Yeah. He is the is the heroes of this film, while the Yankees are the bad guys, <laughs> per se. And what we get is a $50 million baseball romance film that is solid but forgettable. Uh, yeah. There's not really anything here, and it's not really Ra- this is not Raimi's fault at all. I think it mainly just is like they wanted something that was pretty straightforward and by the numbers, and they got something like that, and it just kind of ends up being fine. Yeah, it's there's like nothing a, really okay, much to very this. Very mediocre. Yeah, um, it's it's like the baseball stuff 
is pretty good. Well, I that mean, stuff's I was the best I was stuff. pretty engrossed in all the kind of tense baseball moments. You know, this man at the edge of his career. Yeah, you know, trying to throw the perfect game and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's like this this film's version of the Quick and the Dead shootouts are yeah the pitching moments. Yeah, the pitching which, scenes are pretty great. Yeah, and well the, shot and edited. Yeah, and I really have, like Kevin Costner talking to himself yes, while he's on the mound because the biggest ones are Sam Tuttle, who's like the hot shot of the Yankees and he considers as an asshole. Well, and I and think so, he's his rival. Yeah. He's basically Billy Chappell's mm-hmm. rival. And then there's, bat. and there's Davis who got traded unceremoniously by the Detroit to Yankees. Yeah. Or like was basically cut. And then the Yankees picked him up, Yeah, which gives like a, which probably is like one of my favorite parts about the flashback stuff is like when it flashes back to Davis being there as like a friend of yeah. Billy's, but like, unfortunately he doesn't get a lot of development. So you don't really feel that yeah. friendship that much. I liked, the, yeah, I liked a lot of the baseball outside baseball stuff. Like you're yeah. talking about, kind of the his interactions with other players and figures in the baseball world off the field or off, you know, out of the stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just not enough is done with that. There's kind yeah. of little scenes thrown in here and there, and it's like, oh, okay, that humanizes that character, I guess. But then at the end of the movie, we're doing all these callbacks to these characters. I'm like, I am not emotionally tied to that character. I can tell Billy Chappell is, yeah. but I am not. <laughs> it, I, my biggest issue with the film, Out of the Gate, is the romantic crux of the whole film is a couple that just won't admit to one another that they love each other. They so, won't admit it, and they also just don't. Even though they should probably already know at a certain point in the film, they just don't admit it. Yeah. Well, and you also, I don't, I did not get a sense in this movie of why they were perfect together. Like, why they were meant to be or why they should be together against all odds. And the movie clearly wanted to sell me on that. But they, they, they're cute in the way that any new couple is cute. And then they're at each other's throats. Andy, and then he, we he have to like redeem moved, it. Andy, he moved a tube in a rental car yeah, and he helped him. And then accidentally fixed her car. Yeah, and then stopped a misogynist mechanic from like <laughs> making more issues for her. Like, yeah, he's it's perfect. Just so much. I mean, so most of the movie is spent on this relationship, and yet so little real substance is given to it. You know, yeah. What basically happens is, is any time there's like a genuine moment of romantic chemistry where they're kind of building a relationship. One of them just, like, either just, like, goes, oh, so this is how it is now? And the other one goes, what? What do you mean? Yeah. It's like, oh, like and unfortunately. One of, one of them. Yeah, unfortunately, Kelly Preston is the one who does that the most, where it's, yeah. like, where it's like, I don't want to be a side piece. And he goes, I never said that. Right, yeah. Like, I'm trying to get to know you. Was We've I, only hung yeah, out Was I not once. a gentleman? Did I not treat you well? Yeah. Like, like he, she basically gets so insecure by like other like because of baseball wives and girlfriends going like, huh, he's she's nothing. We'll see a new girl next week. Yeah, right. That she thinks like, oh, am I? A, is this a prank? It's almost like how yeah. she feels it, and it's like he's just like, no, I just thought you were hot and we had great chemistry. I want to get to know you more. Yeah, well, and, and, and then she's like, oh, you don't want to get to know me more, and it's like, what is happening here? Yeah, well, and then when the it the time comes for it to flip the script and make. Billy, the kind of juvenile bad guy of the situation, it's just like a weird flip where he's suddenly a completely emotionally stunted child. Yeah. Where he just no, yeah. yells at her and tells her she's a uh, piece of shit and like, I don't yeah. need you. You don't believe in me. Yeah, and it's like, what? It's like pushing all of her shit Like, into I the get tub. it if you want to play into the angle of 
his whole life has been baseball and he never really figured out relationships. Yeah. But that's not really an element of the character until no. that scene. No, and then it's, it's like, it's, oh, okay. Yeah. Cause, He's cause a sociopath. I don't know. <laughs> that's another issue, too, with the film is like, the film is like trying to establish like, oh, because he's one of the biggest pitchers in the game, he obviously is a playboy who just has sex with multiple women at a time. And you never see that. <laughs> and honestly, you don't really get that air from him at all. Yeah. Like Kevin you honestly, Costner yeah. fe- feels too humble and stoic. Yeah, he, and He looks like he probably was a bit of a man. ladies' man at the beginning of his career, but he's like 19 years in. Yeah. Maybe he's trying to settle down and figure out what he wants to do. Yeah, the only playboy scene in it is the his masseuse. Oh, that is one of my favorite moments. This looks that's one of my favorite like script moments where it's like I just want you to let you, I want to let you know that in the next 5 minutes regardless of what happens just know that I am so excited to see you here and I and I cannot express how happy I am that you're here and then his masseuse just walks down in her underwear yeah. and ruins the whole moment. Uh-huh. That's like that was a really good comedic bit. But then that also led to a really toxic bit that I don't think the film is trying to address his toxic where he goes like, well, you said you wanted us to like, you know, what happens in my world it stays in my world and what happens in your world stays yeah. in your world. What about the whole deal thing? Yeah, and then she goes, I lied. That was a test. And I was like, ew. That's gross. Gross. That's gross. Why Why is yeah. the movie not calling her out on that? That's <laughs> yucky. Then I was like, oh, wait, it's 99. We can't, I guess we can't do that yet. <laughs> and then like, and then because like the whole film is like, they meet up randomly. They have a great night. Uh, Costner wants to meet up with her again, and then she decides she wants to stand him up until the last minute. Yeah. And then they have another great little night, and then they have a weird moment where, like, Costner gets drunk and is like, well, I want you to be here, and he won't be here. And you're like, and she's like, no, I don't want to be there yet. You know, I thought we'd have some distance. And he goes, well, fine. And then he fucks his masseuse. Yep. And then she finds out and surprises him in Florida and then thinks, like, this was the whole point all along. Like, he's just a piece of shit. When in yeah. reality, it was just an unfortunate timing altogether. <laughs> and then, like, they kind of... There's a moment in the middle where, like... And they're, what, happy together kind of like for a, a happy while. family. Yeah. Because, like... She this, has a daughter. Yeah. She was a teen mom, has which, a daughter. Which is great mom. that she decides not to bring that up until the weirdest moment in the film. Right. She brings it up at a random phone call to the point where he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you never brought that what yeah it's like it's not important now and it's like oh that's kind of important yeah. now that you didn't say that but then he's get, got kind of a cute relationship with her daughter he's, he's the only stable father figure in her life yeah it, it really says a lot later in the film where he's in like her college town because she's at us she's in southern california because of usc yeah. and he's there just chilling out and then she gives him a hug and goes I miss you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, and this uh... is this is long after he and her mom had split up. Yeah, and it's like, oh my god, like this is a lot. Yeah. This is a lot. Not great. Yeah. Well, in that, yeah, there's the kind of the happy period, and then kind of the you know the slow decline of their relationship that's shown. Yeah. And through that, you actually see him, Kevin or Billy, and I can't remember the daughter's name, but Heather. Heather. Uh, they kind of get closer. Um, yeah, and then obviously don't really have a way of connecting once uh, the two of them yeah. split up. But um, yeah, I, and I don't know. The weird thing about this movie too is Kevin Costner is really good in the baseball parts. Yes, and then I don't know if it's a script issue or a editing issue or what, but I was 
very unimpressed by him in the more relationship scenes. It's, um, it, and it's it's just so stiff. There's, and there's a part of it that could feel like autopilot. It's a good way yeah. to describe and it. And then he kind of he kind of gets uh, this sort of whiny tone anytime yeah. that something goes wrong. He's like, mm-hmm. "Well, why do we have to do that?" The, I will say one of the best whiny moments is like the only time where it really works is like um, Kelly Preston, the name is Jane Aubrey. Jane and her daughter constantly ask him questions and then like oh, he's yeah. like in the middle he's like late at night like shoving bread in a glass with milk i don't know what he's eating i don't that, I, mean, that I thought it was bread i think it's the bread hell i thought it was like an ice cream cone it that he mashed that into a it, it, mason before, jar and poured before heather down. says anything he goes i want to stop you right there no more questions no questions <laughs> and yeah. it's just sitting there eating this concoction in yeah. silence no the comedic bits are pretty good but yeah the yeah, like when they're the couple is kind of bitching and moaning at each other. Both of them are kind of annoying, so maybe it's a script issue. But yeah, it just it feels so disconnected from the yeah. the performance Kevin Costner's giving on the field. Yeah, it just which seems, is really good. It seems like the biggest thing is that um, Kevin Costner's emotional depth, like Billy Billy Chapel's emotional depth, is very juvenile because yeah. he really hasn't had a close relationship like this. So when things that are unusual relationships happen, it freaks him out and he doesn't understand why. Yeah. But he doesn't, but in a different way, he doesn't pull away from that. Right. Kelly Preston, however, her character is constantly on guard and just assumes everything a red flag, which ultimately makes her bring up her own red flags in the process of that. Yeah. It's, it's just two people. Toxic trust issues kind of yeah, thing. It genuinely is like, it feels like if you're in a theater watching this with somebody you just expect someone to yell in the theater oh just fuck already yeah like just say you love each other because it's clear that you do yeah it's like it's just it's just like really i I honestly think it's pretty bad in terms of like the um will they won't they vibe yeah because obviously it's It's really frustrating yeah will they because like when you're watching the baseball game at a certain point you go oh he's gonna get that perfect game but he's not gonna be satisfied because she's not there Right, I and was, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, well, I was just—I like, was just waiting for the movie to kind of take some kind of subversive—I don't know—you could call it realistic turn, where it's just like, oh, you know, they—they they don't get the happy ending, like a, a La La Land ending, where it's like, yeah, they're happy, but they're not happy, or they're happy, but they're not together. They, they find or a something version like of their that. happiness they could relate to. Yeah, but it's not the um, happy ending per se that right, most people would think. Right, and it just never came, and it had a very conventional ending. Yeah. I mean, I thought even maybe with the baseball element, that the kind of climax there that maybe he wouldn't throw his perfect game or something, but now he throws it. Although yeah. the thing I liked about the the kind of perfect game, no is, is no runs. Couldn't do it by himself. Yeah, that was that a was really great. cool scene and yeah. that they actually took time, you know, they got shots of him looking to his mm-hmm. teammates and he's like Thank you for saving my no, ass. No, there. yeah, like the the whole setup per se of the guy who's considered a joke because a ball hit his head and it ultimately led to like a home run. He ends up catching what would have been a home run. Yeah, yeah. which is great. Which is a great little moment of like, see, you you, you called and you delivered. Yeah, it, it worked out right there. And I think I think the crew was great too in terms of like, I mean, I just. I love John C. Riley, and I think he does as great of a job as he can with this character, despite very little depth. Yeah, he's fun but though. He's on a fun all character. honesty, 
to be honest, I was watching him. I was like, if there's any roles I feel like I could play perfectly, it's the John C. Riley best friend <laughs> roles. Like, I think their whole dynamic was a lot of fun in the beginning. And actually, my favorite joke is when John C. Riley's like telling him, like, you got to get that checked out. Like, you got to stop. You got to do this. And then Kevin Costner goes, man, I just have the ugliest wife in the game, don't I? And yeah. then, like, John C. Riley goes, that was called for. That hurt. Yeah. That hurt. <laughs> it was like he's played his Game Boy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I was like, this this dynamic I like. Right. And there's very little of that dynamic in the flashbacks. Yeah. It's more just like well, Kevin and, Costner and Preston yeah. and then a little bit of Malone. And honestly, yeah, I mean, the Billy Chappell's characterization in relation to the game of baseball and the people around him in that field is really cool and I think yeah. could have been explored more and made for a really interesting kind of, you know, man at the end of the line movie. Yeah. And instead half of the runtime or more is taken up with this kind of crappy will they won't they romance. It's super sappy. Like it's in which super neither character is really developed within the relationship. Yeah. They have their own development kind of outside of the relationship, mm-hmm. particularly Billy, but not in context of how they are together yeah and it, it just ends up being like an, another it feels like the time where it's like well i love costner i think he's great it's always a pleasure to see him still working but um just a quick question for you how many films do you think costner did between 1990 and 2000 1990 and so like 2000? for a decade from 1990 to 2000 how many films do you think he did don't you dare look at um 20 close 14 films oh, okay <laughs> he did 14 films yeah I and knew some he, of those I knew are he like was working a lot then big cause... films like even his own films like dances with wolves mm-hmm. yeah you have um the bodyguard even his flops like Waterworld. like the it man the era of costner I, yeah i think yeah i was like i was like that's the decade of costner if there's Wyatt any Earp. yeah wider jfk if there's any... robin hood yeah and then like the last like if you go in 2000 he plays um jfk's head of security in 13 days oh yeah. they get you that which is a great movie I've he's great in that um but like if there's any film where you're just, like if i can think of any film where you're watching that's a costner film and be like why the fuck are you making this <laughs> this feels like that yeah because like this is not even close to being this is probably out of all the ones i've seen because again i haven't seen bull durham right, but either. i mean but knowing how huh I have not either. But, like, knowing how much of a classic it seems, especially in his filmography, I would assume this is probably his worst baseball film. (laughs) Probably. And it just feels like it's funnier to think about how much of an issue he had in during the production in terms of, like, control than anything. Because it's funny that, like, one of the biggest things about this film is that apparently he had an issue with Universal because Universal cut like 10 seconds yep. of footage because full. they didn't want it to be rated r it was a full frontal nude scene it, it's his wiener yeah. yeah and and he was angry yeah he like he accused was... the studio of not being or lacking courage and stuff it's like but that I guess, and like there's some test audiences were kind yeah. of like well i don't know why we needed to see kevin costner's penis that in was this the movie. funniest thing <laughs> I, if that's really the reason why i I love it, uh, and I just and I want... Just, I just love the idea of the actor in the baseball movie. He's like, the world needs to see my cock. No, I, and the needs, audience saying, yeah. we do not need to see his cock. Full, full dong in this baseball film. <laughs> yeah, he's like, that's the artistic move. And everybody's like, no. 
That's like of that. like watching like watching a natural and there's just a random scene where like Robert Redford bends over and just like spreads. Yeah. It's like, no, why is this happening? Just, yeah. Why are you doing this to me? It was even I mean, what I think is even as funny as that, but in a different sense, is that if this is true, this is wonderful. Apparently the owner of the Yankees at the time, when he found out that the Yankees were the antagonist per se in the film, he hated that the Yankees lost a game in Yankee Stadium and yeah. was about to fight having the Yankees be the antagonist in that film. And Costner basically had to explain to him, like, in-universe, the lore of what would happen post that game where it's like, yeah, they'd lose the game, but, like, they're still there for, like, the AL- ALC finals and, like, they, they could yeah. ultimately win the World Series anyway. And the guy was satisfied with that story. Yeah, I love that. It's like Did... Quentin Tarantino describing what happens to Rick Dalton after <laughs> yeah. Once Upon... He's just got this fully formed vision of what happens, and it's like, doesn't matter except to this man. Only to the point where apparently they sent him a World Series ring in 1999. <laughs> so satisfied, in it's... fact, with this alternate reality where the yeah, Yankees just dominate the world. The world. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but it's so funny that it's like... And it's also like Costner openly like during the like production like press junket tours was like shitting on universal yeah and universal's like hey you're not you can't, you can't really do that do man. that and like it got to a point too where like even i think Raimi had to talk about it Raimi was like i completely understand where universal is coming from but it's a bummer that costner is like i understand where costner's coming from too where it's like you want creative control with that but like universal's like he's the actor right he's not a producer or director yeah. he's an actor and then it led to Again, they the middle ground they found was all right. At least make the film two hours long. <laughs> and watching it, it's like, why not at least ninety minutes, a hundred at most? Right. You can really cut a lot of this. <sighs> yeah. And even though there's some great moments in the film where it's like, I like when he cuts his hand because you don't see it, and there's a nice like reveal where like the, the blood yeah. and the snow, and like, that's all a great moment. Like Ramy peeking through there. Oh, it's great. And like the fact that it's like, you know exactly what's about to happen because Uh they've already alluded to the scar before. And it's just like a fucking, uh, like setup shot, like no moving. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's like a locked off shot of just him pushing stuff through his saw. (laughs) Yeah. Under his table saw. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God. Remy. I mean, yeah, the most Remy stuff is in the baseball scenes. And it's also funny too, because I think this is the film that has the most CG out of the three of them. Because there is a few times in the baseball scenes where they, in post-production, uh, blur out the background around Kevin Costner yeah. when he's trying to cancel out everybody while he's pitching. Yeah, he's kind of zoning in. It is absolutely CG. There's nothing in... I, there's no way it could have been anything but. Yeah, well, and there's this, there's kind of a weird... I don't know if you've ever, like, like uh, what's it called? Portrait mode yes. on, like, a phone camera how you can see kind of this weird dividing line between yes. where the phone is trying yeah. to blur out the background and blur out mm. the edge of, of the f- subject. There's kind of that going mm. on when it does that, where it's like there's this weird cutout, and it's like, huh. Yeah, it's like the, it's like the Photoshop kind of thing where you have to cut something out and yeah, put them in. Right. And, and that was, it was just funny watching this. I was like, of course the baseball film is the one that has the most CG <laughs> out of the three of these yeah. films. And that is... For love of the game. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about it. Uh, honestly, maybe the thing I hate most about this movie, because I wouldn't say I hate the movie. I don't ever want to watch it again, but I don't hate yeah. it. Uh, yeah. But the one thing I can confidently say I hate about it is the title. 
Um, for love of the game. It it needs the the before love for the love of the do you game. Wanna, do you want me can I be honest? Can I be yeah. honest to everyone who's listening to you? I thought it was called that until I, I watched the movie. I thought so too. And you know what's funny is I even forgot the title didn't have it until we got to the baseball scene where he writes it on the <laughs> baseball. And I yeah. went, oh, so there's no the in between yeah. for and love. I guess I just Berenstein that into existence yeah Yeah, no i i found out because i tried to search for it on my (laughs) tv and came up with uh shoot what was it there there's something else called for the love of the game um i think i know what you're talking about it's uh it's like a music video or something i'm gonna look this up real quick i I, it's, it's funny too because it's like i mean for love of the game is the most recent in my brain obviously since it's the last in the trilogy but like Trying to f- finding the film, I had to const. I triple checked to make sure it's a Raimi film because I, I just <laughs> had a hard time being like, "This is this is th- okay. I know this is it, but like, I have to make sure. Mm-hmm. I don't want to buy a. I don't want to buy a baseball romance drama that isn't the one by Sam Raimi because I will be mad. Yeah, <laughs> and it is, and it is the least Raimi out of the three of them. Yeah, for sure. Even though know, the I, baseball stuff has a little bit of that Raimi coming through with the the fastness and the cuts and yeah, kinda. the energy, but it's yeah, it's a kinda. Yeah. Okay. Like I'm, it, not, I'm not able to find what this for the love of the game was, no. but it was some like it was like a concert movie or something mm-hmm. for some musician. I I just I searched for the love of the game on my TV and couldn't find anything except that, and I was like, what? Uh, it's just it it's it's so funny to think that like at this point I think in Raimi's career. Like, I think Roger Ebert's review basically said, like, I mean, Raimi's better than this. <laughs> yeah. He shouldn't be a part of something like this. Everyone a part of this film is, should be better in better things. Right. And that's basically how it feels. I mean, like, at its best, it's solid and forgettable. At yeah. its worst, good lose. You don't have to watch it. You don't yeah. have to find out what the worst is. But it's just, like, there are better romances and there are much better baseball films out there. And there's probably actually, I think Bull Durham's technically a baseball romance. So go watch that. Instead. Yeah. Go 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 do that. And that is the dramas of Sam Raimi. Yeah, or technically speaking, at least most of them. Yeah. Um, but that is our trilogy on the dramas yeah. of Sam Raimi. And oh yes. We will absolutely have more Raimi to come. Oh yeah, eventually. we got we got oh we're we. He's... Including probably the things that you would expect yes. us to cover. Yes. <laughs> If we are going to Snyderize any of these directors in terms of the amount of episodes we make, yeah. Raimi's probably going to be next, and we're just trying to figure out what we are going to do next yeah, in this, his filmography. This next 2021-2022 year yes. will be probably our year of Raimi, like last uh, year was our year of Snyder. We're, we might even be talking about the films that are tied to Raimi projects that aren't raimi directed <laughs> yeah right which is establishing that dark man trilogy might happen yes in the next year or so but all yeah those, all those diehard dark man fans oh, are screaming of course, every, i mean again about raimi and his wild cast who doesn't love a dark anti-hero vigilante story starring liam neeson and <laughs> francis mcdormand right what a wild thing to exist in this world <laughs> but yeah we are now going into spooky season yes we will not have an episode next week but on october 2nd we are going to start doing some horror and that horror we're going to start doing is a classic to a degree both good (laughs) and bad trilogy with uh, a a classic first film a so bad it's good sequel and then a third film that i would consider a cult classic now 
Um, yeah. In terms of like, it's like its growing popularity has happened over the years, but it definitely, I don't think, yeah. made a lot of money when it first came out. Well, and it, we will also be following that up the with following week with a prequel. Yes. And I, Logan, do you want to go ahead and drop it on him? We're doing the Exorcist films. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are doing every single Exorcist film. Yes. We are going to be doing the Exorcist trilogy first, which is the Exorcist, the Exorcist Heretic, and the Exorcist... Dominion? Or no, not no, Dominion. No, no. Um... Uh, the Exorcist 3. Because um, it, is, it is called Exorcist 3 in <laughs> yeah, some places. It has a subtitle, I think. And then but... the prequel we're going to do is we're going to do the two different versions of the Exorcist prequel that they tried to make in the early 2000s with Stellan Skarsgård as Max von Sydow's character. Yes. And which it's is, basically think, two different cuts of the same yeah, film. Yeah, it's, it's vastly different cuts of the same film which yeah. is wild so in the first half of october that is what we are going to be <laughs> talking be all about. exorcist oh it's all exorcist and i'm i am so excited because i love yeah. the original have always heard how the second one is absolute dog shit right and i'm pumped to watch the third one because i've heard it's great yeah and then the, the and prequel then, the prequels yeah. we'll get to <laughs> right right yeah we'll see what that is yeah and then we'll we'll have even more spookiness yes. in time for halloween so absolutely we are filling out spooktober we are trying our best to fill it out just in time for spooky season so tune in on october 2nd when we do the exorcist trilogy but until then i'm logan sowash and i'm andy carr thank you so much for listening